Well, I know that many of you were probably discouraged, as I was, by the dumpster fire of the presidential debate last Tuesday. And uh, as Christians, we need to be in prayer for our country, and we need to vote as God is leading you. Uh, But as we're going to be reminded again today in Daniel, God is the one who's on the throne in heaven. God is in control as he sets up and takes down kingdoms. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ, our hope is in the Lamb of God, not the donkey, not the elephant of whatever political party uh, you may support. And as we turn to Daniel chapter 8 today, we're going to see once again how God is in control of history. As we've been going through Daniel, it's been like looking uh, in a professional photographer's bag where they have different lenses that they're able to frame a picture with. There's a wide-angle lens to give a panoramic view. There's a telephoto lens that brings things at a distance into focus. And then there's a zoom lens where you can zoom right in on one specific thing. And in chapter 2, we saw Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream where there was this broad overview of the coming kingdoms. And then in chapter 7, God gave us a closer look through the dream, the vision that he gave to Daniel. And as we turn to Daniel chapter 8 today, God is going to use a zoom lens because he's going to focus in on two of the kingdoms that we've previously looked at. Now, the purpose of this prophecy is to reveal what will happen to God's people. And when I say God's people, it's not just the Jews. It's also God's people who are believers in Christ. Because what we have today is a dual fulfillment prophecy. It's a prophecy that has a literal fulfillment in a past time, and it is one that still has a future fulfillment that is to come. It's one of the reasons the the text changes from Aramaic back to Hebrew here in Daniel chapter 8 going forward. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin by reading in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, the time mentioned here tells us that there's two years that have passed between the first vision that we saw in chapter 7 in this one, because it says it's the third year of Belshazzar. And what that tells us is it's 551 B.C. Now, in 551 B.C., Susa was a tiny little backwater city. It was not a place that anybody would think of as being significant. Yet here in Daniel's dream, it says he's in the citadel of Susa, which means there's a major fortress and a palace there. So what God does in this vision is he not only takes Daniel from Babylon to Susa, but he also takes him forward more than a 100 years in time because the Persian king Xerxes built a magnificent palace there in Susa. This is what you see. uh, The events that are recorded in the book of Esther took place in this. In Nehemiah that we studied recently, it is where where, uh, uh, Nehemiah was the the cupbearer to the king. He was Artaxerxes' cupbearer there in the palace at Susa. And so in 551 B.C., no one except for God knew that this would be a significant city as the great capital of the Persian Empire. Now, verses 3 through 4 tell us, Then I lifted my gaze and I looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. 
and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. Now you'll remember in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5, the Media-Persian Empire was pictured as a bear. And this bear was kind of raised up on one side, showing the dominance of the Persian Empire that, that was part of this dual kingdom. And we see the same thing happening here because there's two horns, but one is longer than the other, and it's the one that came up afterwards. We know we're still dealing with the Media Persian Empire because as you look at verses 15 through 20, it tells us this. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulei, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So this is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel is the messenger angel throughout the scriptures. And so Daniel is there, and this angelic messenger comes to interpret the dream. It says, so he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me, and he made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur in the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So here we know that we're dealing with the Media Persian Empire. And historians tell us that the king of Persia would carry a ram's head into battle because he saw it as the guardian spirit of the empire. And here God, looking ahead, again knows all these details, so he pictures the kingdom as a ram. And the next kingdom to arise would be Greece. And this is who we find described in verses 5 through 7. It says, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming up from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal. And he rushed at him with his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram, and he shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, and he trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Now in chapter 7, we saw that the Grecian Empire was pictured there as a leopard that had four heads, and it also had four wings. And, you know, this animal is one, a, a leopard is is one that we know is swift. And the four wings we talked about in chapter 7 speak of the additional speed that was given to this empire. So, again, Alexander, they were able to go through the entire earth, Alexander the Great conquering kingdom after kingdom with lightning-fast speed. And the four heads represented, after the death of Alexander, the four generals that would divide the empire. And we're going to talk more about that a little bit later in this passage. But here, Greece is now pictured as being a goat. And a goat is not something we typically think of as being speedy, is it? But notice in the dream, it says it was moving so fast that its feet did not even touch the ground. So it's pictured as kind of hovering and flying over the surface of the earth. And goats normally have two horns, but this one only has a single prominent horn, which shows the power would be resident with one particular leader, which points to Alexander the Great. 
Now, you'll notice that special mention is made of the rage that this goat has as it clashes with the ram. And in our day, we have the benefit of looking back at history and being able to understand things that we're reading about here because what historians tell us is about 150 years before the battle that Daniel is being shown here, this Persian king Xerxes, as he was going throughout and conquering territories of his own, when he came to Greece, he not only conquered Greece, but to add insult to injury, he burned all of the significant and cultural buildings like the Acropolis and others. And so when, when we now fast forward to Alexander coming to power, he remembers this uh, insult and, and he takes it out. The rage is, is seen in the way that he destroys uh, the Persian Empire here. And as Daniel sees his battle taking place, it's in front of a canal. And the first great defeat of the media Persian army happened at the river Granicus. Historians tell us that Alexander crossed the river with 35,000 troops. Now, that's a big army. But waiting for him, the media Persian army had 100,000 troops, as well as 10,000 horsemen. So they were three times the size of the Greek army. And yet Alexander was able to defeat them. There were 22,000 of the media Persian army that were destroyed, where Alexander only lost 300 of his own troops. And so there's this decisive battle that begins to turn over and, and Greece comes into power. And again, as we're looking at all these details, I want you to remember this is being revealed hundreds of years in some cases before they ever happen. And so again, it, it points out to us, this isn't just some you know, pie-in-the-sky prophecy that says, oh, in 2025 there's going to be a plane crash. This is giving us details of the flight number, how many were on board, where it was flying, what they were eating for dinner. I mean, it is, it is just down to these intricate details of what God is revealing. It shows again how we have a God who is in control of history. We have a God who knows every detail of what is to come. So if, as we live in this day, if you're concerned and worried about all that's happening in the world and it's keeping you up at night and you're anxious and other things... I want you to give that to God. God knows what is coming. God has a plan, and he's unfolding his plan throughout history. And God is a God who doesn't just know the major events of history. He knows every single one of you by name. The scriptures tell us he knows tiny little details about each of us. In Luke 12, 7, we're told that God knows even the number of hairs on each of our heads. He knows you by name. He knows what you're facing. He knows your needs. And he is a God who loves and cares for you. And as God is revealing these things to Daniel, I want you to remember the backdrop of the entire book. In chapter 1, we saw the Jews had been carried away into captivity. They had been in Babylonian captivity uh, there for over 50 years at this point. And it would be easy for them to feel God has forgotten us. God has abandoned us. We see a similar sentiment to this in Isaiah 49, 14, where it says, But Zion said, said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And God replies, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So again, friends, if you find yourself in a situation right now where you're struggling, you may be out of work, you may be anxious about the future, you may be dealing with health issues, and you're saying, does God even know? Does God even care? 
The answer is yes. He's written our names on the palms of his hand, he says. I want you to remember about the palms of God. When he took on flesh and blood in the form of Jesus Christ, he went to a cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins. There were nails, spikes that were driven through his palms. As you read the scriptures, it tells us when we get home to heaven, we will see Jesus standing as the lamb as if slain. He bears the honorific marks of his crucifixion. We will see him in heaven where the crown of thorns, where the nails were in his hands and his feet, where the spear was thrust into his side. And as you see those nail-scarred hands, God says, I've written your name across it. He says, I paid too high a price for you. I will never forget you. I will never forsake you. And this is what God is revealing to Daniel and the Jews to remind them he's not forgotten them. He has a plan that is unfolding. And as we talk about God's unfolding plan, again, as we look back in history, it's amazing to see the things that happened. When, when the time came where Alexander comes to power and he was marching throughout the earth, conquering nation after nation, there came a point where he was marching toward Egypt and he was about to capture and destroy Egypt, and on the way was Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been rebuilt. As we get to the end of Daniel, we'll see where there's the decree to allow the Jews to return to the land. And that's where the events of Nehemiah took place, as the city is rebuilt. And so this rebuilt city of Jerusalem is standing in the way, and Alexander is coming, and he's going to level the city on his way to Egypt. And As he's approaching, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, tells us how the high priest, the Jewish high priest, takes the scroll of Daniel and he goes out to meet Alexander. And he shows Alexander Daniel chapter 8 that we're looking at today. And in it, he's shown how God said, you will rise to power, you will defeat the Persians. And, And Alexander was so impressed that historians tell us that he bowed down and he worshiped Jehovah, the God of heaven, and he enriched the city of Jerusalem rather than leveling it. As this is taking place, Parmenian, one of his, Alexander's generals, said to him, why are you bowing down to the Jewish high priest when it's other men who prostrate themselves before Alexander? And Alexander the Great replied, it was not before him that I prostrated myself, but before the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest. So here Alexander is, we're told he will bow down before no man, and yet he bowed down before the God of heaven. In Daniel 8.8 8, it says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander the Great was a general at 21 years of age. He conquered the known world at 26. And at the age of 32, he died from complications of acute alcoholism. You know, Alexander is a guy who could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer his own passions. And the scriptures warn us about that. It tells us in Proverbs 16:32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who conquers a city. There are many men and women who have succeeded according to the world's standards. They have power and position and prominence, and, and yet they're, they're bankrupt personally and spiritually. Their lives are empty. Jesus warns us in Matthew 16:26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
As you think about your own life this morning, what are you exchanging your life for, so to speak? Your time, your focus, your energies. Is it to get the things of the world, the power, the prestige? Or is it to serve Jesus, the Prince of Princes, as we're going to see in a moment? Alexander was in the prime of his life and at the peak of his power when he was suddenly cut off. And it says four horns come up as Alexander's generals divide the territories. We can look at, again, back at history and see what happened as Macedonia, Greece becomes an empire. Syria and Trace become another. You've got uh, Asia Minor and then the areas of Egypt and Israel were divided into another sub-kingdom. And this is what we see in verses 21 through 22. It says, and the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And the broken horn and the four kings that arose in its place represent four kingdoms, which will arise from this nation, although not with his power. So what happens now is the camera zooms in. It's going to focus on what's happening in one of these four kingdoms, which is what we see in verses 9 through 14. It says, and out of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of, of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and it will perform its will and, and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the, that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, here we see there's something called the small horn in verse 9. And this is different than the little horn that we saw back in Daniel chapter 7. Sometimes people confuse the two, but I want to show you why we're dealing with two distinct individuals here. Because as you compare the passages, what you see in chapter 7 is the little horn rose from the fourth kingdom, which was Rome. And here, the small horn comes from the third kingdom, which is Greece. In chapter 7, the little horn rose as an eleventh horn following the ten, while this one comes out of the four horns. And so these two share the role of being enemies of God and his people, but they're two distinct individuals. And we're dealing with somebody called the Antichrist. And the scriptures tell us that there are multiple Antichrists, and then there is the final one to come. In 1 John 2.18 in the New Testament, it says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, I told you that the little horn that Daniel sees is one of those Antichrists, But there is also the final Antichrist of the end times that we talked about last time. So one of the four horns or divisions that is being talked about here is this this Antichrist that is in view. And it 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 comes out of the Alexandrian Empire that was that of Syria. 
because out of Syria there came a king by the name of Antiochus IV. Now he took on the moniker of Epiphanes. And the name Epiphanes literally means, uh, it, it speaks of God, it literally means God manifest. And archaeologists have found coins that have the image of Antiochus IV with the word theos. And theos is the Greek word for God. So he claimed to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God incarnate. Now what's funny is the Jews loved to mock him and they changed his, they would mispronounce mispronounce Epiphanes to Epimenes. Now what Epimenes means is the madman. So he said, I'm God incarnate, and they said, you're the madman. And so this was one of the little tongue-in-cheek things they would do with him. And, but Antiochus hated the Jews, and he said he was God. Antiochus IV murdered his brother to take the throne in 175 B.C. And then he, in 170, went, uh, Ptolemy VI of Egypt sought to recover the territory. These four kingdoms that arose were kind of infighting and trying to reconsolidate Alexander's old empire. And so when Ptolemy VI comes against Antiochus IV, Antiochus in turn invades Egypt, and he was able to defeat Ptolemy, and he made himself king in Egypt. And this is the growth in power we see to the south in verse 9. And on his return from his conquest, trouble broke out in Jerusalem, so he decided to subdue Jerusalem, which is called the beautiful land that we see in this prophecy. And Antiochus removes the Jewish high priest. He plunders the temple. So we're going to be talking about this desecration that takes place. And there are a couple of events that could fit it. One would be in 170, where he plunders and desecrates the temple. Verse 10 says he would wage war against the host and cause some of the stars to fall to the earth where they would be trampled. Now, sometimes host refers to the angelic host, and other times it refers to God's people. Uh, you'll notice as we read that, that there are these angelic messengers, Gabriel and another angel talking back and forth, and then they're referring to the host. And host and stars are used in Genesis 15:5, where Abraham's de- descendants are compared to the stars. And in Exodus 12:41, the Jews are called the hosts of Yahweh. So what's in view here is how Antiochus Epiphanes is going to come and trample the Jewish people. And this was taking place as they were subjugated. They were forbidden to follow the Mosaic law. They couldn't observe the Sabbath. They couldn't circumcise their children as a sign of the covenant. He suspends the annual feast, and the sacrifices were removed. These are all the things that we see in verse 11. Now, the persecution came to a head in 168 B.C. Because Antiochus, as he was going out trying to take over more and more territory... He's turned back from Alexandria by the Roman commander. And so having lost, as he's returning home, he's passing through Jerusalem. And kind of like sometimes, you know, the boss yells at you at work, so you come home and yell at the kids or something. Uh, This is what happens. He's angry, and he takes out his wrath on the Jews. And he sends 20,000 troops into Jerusalem where he starts killing people. He seizes Uh, the temple on the Sabbath, he goes in and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple. This happened on December 16th, 167 BC, where a pig desecrates the altar and then he forces the Jews to eat pig's flesh, which is an unclean food. And so after that, he erects an idol to Zeus, a pagan god there in the temple. 
And this serves as a precursor to this final abomination of desolation that we're going to see when we get to Daniel 9.27. You recall in Daniel 9.27, there's this abomination of desolation that takes place in the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24, 15, when he says the final Antichrist will set up his image in the temple to be worshipped in place of God. So what Daniel's dream reveals here is there's this coming ruler who would be Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, and he would desecrate the temple. And they would suspend the offerings for 2,300 days. Now, the 2,300 days, as you look at your text, it literally says evenings and mornings. So the 2,300 could actually be 1,150 days. And the reason for that is because in Numbers 28, verses 3 through 4, we're told, this is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, one year old without defects, as a continual burnt offering every day. Now listen to this. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, together with a quantity of flour and oil. So we're seeing that the offerings are being suspended in the morning and evening. So I'm going to let you decide what you want the 2300 days to be, and where you want to start and stop the clock. Because there are a number of ways this could, this could be looked at. And some will say, well, 2300 is a round number, so it's just kind of pointing to this general uh, you know, time of, of persecution. But everything we've seen in Daniel is so precise, down to the details of dates. And so I believe we're looking at a literal number here that had a literal fulfillment during the time of Antiochus. Now, it could be 2,300 days. It could be 1,150. You can look at the events. You could start it from the first plundering of the temple in 170 B.C. when the temple was desecrated. Uh, You could take it to the total desecration that happened with the pig on the altar in 167. Uh, There was a, a Jew by the name of Judas Maccabees who led a revolt against Antiochus and his army a few years after that event. And he was able to retake the temple. He was able to restore and rededicate the temple on December 25th, 164 B.C. Now, this is what the the Jews celebrate as Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah is called the Feast of Dedications or the Feast of Lights. And what history says is that when the temple was retaken, as they re Uh, started to rededicate the temple. The scriptures are very clear in the prescribed oil that is to be used in the lights. And they found only enough oil to last one day. But they decided to go ahead and relight uh, the oil, to use the oil and relight the lamps. And it lasted miraculously for eight days until new oil could be processed that was in line with what was prescribed. And so this is what Hanukkah looks at and celebrates every year. And so Antiochus died in 164 BC. He had a case of intestinal worms. He died a horrific, painful death uh, as it ate away his guts. And then in 163 BC, all the sacrifices were reestablished. So again, as I said, you can choose where to start and stop this. Was it uh, just the sacrifice on the altar? Was it all of those? So you could be looking at anything from uh, December 25th, 164 B.C. to into 163 as this point of reinstitution. What I want you to take away is this. There is no question 
that there was a literal fulfillment of what we're reading about during this time of Antiochus the fourth, during this reign of terror. But there is still something to come. Remember, I told you this is a dual fulfillment prophecy. There was the literal fulfillment of the desecration under Antiochus, and there is the abomination of desolation that is yet to come, as you see there in Daniel 9.27, as well as 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 8. And as we look at verses 23 through 25, Daniel is giving us a further look ahead to this final Antichrist. It says, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and holy people, and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. So there is this final antichrist that is to come. And it will be during a period of peace. Again, when we get to Daniel 9, we'll talk about that seven-year period of the tribulation. And it's divided at the midpoint where the abomination of desolation occurs. There will be a period of some peace, but then he's going to reveal himself for who he is and demand to be worshipped as God. And it says here that he's going to oppose the Prince of Princes, capital P. This is Jesus Christ, who's called the Lord, capital L of Lords, the King, capital K of Kings. Jesus is the Prince of Princes, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And Satan is seeking to overthrow him. But you see that he is going to be overthrown because it says, but he, this is the Antichrist, will be broken without human agency. And the way that God overthrows him, as we saw uh, last time, is at the second coming of Jesus. This is when Christ will return physically to the earth with the armies of heaven that are made up of the raptured believers. And Jesus will return physically to the earth as you see the second coming there. And when this occurs, uh, Satan will be bound for a thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 2. And the millennial kingdom will take place. This is that thousand-year period where God will reign on the throne. We as believers will co-reign with him and have responsibility. But at the end of the millennial kingdom comes the great white throne judgment. This is where those who have rejected Jesus will be rejected and thrown into the lake of fire, what we call hell. Now, I want you to notice uh, that down there it says the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 19, 19, and 20. Satan will join them there in judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And so God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth that have been corrupted by sin. He will take all of those who have rejected his payment in their place. Jesus is the one on the great white throne judgment. And he will open the book singular, which is called the book of life. When we accept Christ as our Savior, our name is there in the book of life. So when it says he opened the book, those who are at the great white throne judgment, their name is not there. He then opens the books plural to look at their deeds. Because people will say, well, I'm good enough to get to God through the way I've lived my life. But the Bible is very clear that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person has fallen short of the standard of perfection. So Jesus says you owe a penalty. 
the penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so those at the great white throne judgment are the ones who have rejected Jesus' payment in their place, so they have to pay the penalty of death themselves. And they are sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. And then what we see is God will recreate the heavens and the earth in perfection. All, all the believers from the beginning to the present will enjoy eternity with God. The Old Testament righteous saints will be resurrected. Those like Abraham where it says he believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It is by faith alone that we are saved. And so God will take those who have placed their faith in his son, the promised Messiah, and they will enter into the eternal state and be with God. Daniel 8, 26 through 27 says, And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and I carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. So intense were the things that Daniel saw that he's wiped out physically. And, and then it tells us, unlike the dreams before where the meanings were revealed, this was not shown even to Daniel. And what that tells us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is for those of us living in this day, we have a privilege that not even the Old Testament prophets had. You and I are allowed to know things that not even Daniel was shown because we have this. We have the totality of God's revelation. And God has given us the plan from the beginning to the end. And he tells us what is happening in his word. We have the privilege of being able to not only look back in history, but we can look ahead because the Holy Spirit who superintended the writing of God's word, the Holy Spirit who gave these visions and, and dreams to those in the past says this is the meaning. This is what we know is going to happen. Now, as we've talked about before, this isn't just to tickle our ears. This isn't just so we can walk out of here and say, wow, isn't that really cool what's to come? Because remember, there are a lot of hard things that are to come. There's a tribulation. There's judgment. There will be people who are separated from God for all eternity. And as we walk out of here today, we should walk out of here not just with a sense of awe and peace because we know God is in control, but we should walk out of here thinking of those who do not yet know the Lord, family members at home, friends at school or work, people you encounter. And we should be sharing with them the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what it is that he's done. As we end today, we're coming to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, what it reminds us of is who Jesus is and what he has done. As you came in, you should have picked up a, a cup with the elements. This is a cup that has the, the wafer on top and juice below. And if you're at home, this is the time to, to take the elements that you've prepared and have them ready. The scriptures tell us that we're to come to the table with clean hands and hearts. We're to confess our sins. So if there are any sins that you've not yet confessed to God, I would encourage you to do so as we uh, approach the table now. And just ask God for forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so whatever it is that you have done to be in rebellion, God offers you forgiveness. 
And the way we have been forgiven is through the sacrifice of Jesus. When we get to Daniel 9.26, we're going to see where the prophecy says the Messiah would be cut off to put an end to iniquity. Jesus came and he died in order to pay the penalty of death that was owed. And that's what we remember today. As you take and you peel back the top here, there's a, a piece of bread. And what this represents is the body of Jesus. The reason that God took on flesh and blood and walked the earth and came uh, to ultimately go to the cross is because there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a payment for sin. The sacrifices in the temple could not remove the penalty that was owed. They were only a temporary covering. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, took away the sin of the world. It's why John 19.30 says, it is finished. As Jesus breathed his last, he said, to day, literally, it is finished. It means paid in full is the literal interpretation of day. What was paid in full was the wage of sin. Remember Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus took our place so that we could have a place with him for all eternity. If you've not yet received Jesus as your Savior and you're ready to accept his death in your place, Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this is a time where all of us who are believers in Christ remember his sacrifice on our behalf the body of Jesus, eat it in remembrance of him. We have juice here. And I want you to be careful as you open it. You might want to turn it away from yourself so that you don't. And this is why I have two up here, because sometimes they're a little hard to open. And so what the Bible tells us is that Jesus shed his blood to pay this penalty of death that we owed. And so in this cup that I hold is simply grape juice. You may have other elements at home for those of you worshiping with us online, but it is a reminder to us, the book of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Again, it goes on to say the blood of bulls and goats and other sacrifices could not remove that penalty. It was only through the Lamb of God. In John 1.29, we're told, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus came. And so today we remember the death of the Lamb of God, the one who paid the penalty of death that I owe and you owe, the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. Drink it in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word, not only your written word that reveals to us the things that are to come, but we thank you, God, that it reveals to us who is the living word, the one in John 1, 1, where it says, behold, where it tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We look ahead and we see you, Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one who would fulfill the prophecies, the one who would take our place on the cross who would pay that penalty of death that we owe we thank you god for your great love for us that you would die to save us and we thank you god that as those who are believers in christ that we've been made members of the of your family we've been given a part 
because you, Jesus, took our place. You were the propitiation, a big word that means you paid the penalty of death and you also removed the wrath, which is why we are called sons and daughters, welcomed into the family because of your great love and sacrifice. And so, Jesus, as recipients of your grace, as we go into the world, would you help us to be messengers? Would we be messengers of light in the darkness? Would we share with others today how they, too, can be part of the family of God, how they, too, can receive your gift of grace and eternal life by turning from their sins to you, Jesus, as their Savior? Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you for your word that teaches us. May we who understand these things through what you've revealed to us now go and share them with others. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us as you leave. Uh, If you will take your cups and you can drop them in the receptacles on the way out the door. For those of you worshiping online with us, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.